Everyone else, if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, page number, page numbers in your bulletin, on page number 1169. Colossians chapter 2, we've been uh, going through this book. I'm going to switch to this one. Uh, we've been going through this book of Colossians, one of Paul's letters, uh, for the last few weeks. And today, we've really come to the heart of Paul's letter. Uh, these verses that we're going to read are the hinge on which the whole book turns. So we're going to read chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, and then we'll dive in. So here we go. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Anxiety, uncertainty, and confusion. The book of Colossians was written to people who had many reasons to experience all those feelings. Uh, Sort of went over this a few weeks ago when we began the book of Colossians, but there are at least three reasons that these people might have been feeling anxiety, uncertainty, and confusion. First, they were relatively new Christian believers. So the Christian church was not a long-established institution in their community. This was not something that they had just been born and raised with for decades. Uh, they, the, the church in this city had only existed for, at most, five or six years. Uh, when Paul wrote this letter. So they were still sort of figuring out this new thing of following Jesus together. Second, they were living in a city that was in decline. Uh, Colossae had once been the center of a thriving textile industry. In fact, like many towns in Connecticut that were sort of built up around the textile industry. So Colossae at one point had been known for its high quality dark red Colossian wool. But those days had long passed. And other nearby cities were sort of the up-and-coming places to live and work. Colossae was small and out of the way and not on the upswing. So these were relatively new Christian believers living in a declining city. And third, they were surrounded by competing spiritual influences. So there, was a, there, were, uh, there wasn't sort of one dominant religion in the area. There were several options out there. There was a substantial Jewish community with long history in the area. There were worshipers of all kinds of different Greek and Roman gods. There were philosophical groups 
People would have been traveling through on the road, bringing different ideas. And each of these religious groups offered their own distinctive set of ideas and experiences. And so the Christians in Colossae, to whom Paul was writing, had many reasons to feel confused, uncertain, anxious. Now, there are, of course, many differences between first century Colossae and 21st century Connecticut, uh, but I think there are many parallels. Right? Lots of people today are worried about the possibility of economic decline. Uh, over the last 30 years, business leaders have used the acronym VUCA, Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous, to describe the world in which we live. It's a common phrase that's discussed in business schools. Uh, but it's not just economic decline that people are worried about. Uh, many people have seen churches decline. Right? The Christian church has a long history in New England, but a long history is no guarantee of a prosperous future. Uh, most people in our world today still believe in God, but most people don't automatically think that their spiritual needs will be met by coming to church or reading the Bible. Right? It's, that's not a given. Many people have been disillusioned by the church's failures. Many people see the church as a potentially oppressive force. Or they have lots of other things that they like to do on Sunday mornings, right? There's, there's all kinds of uh, competing allegiances in the world these days. Um, so I think for those of us who are committed to following Jesus and being part of a church here in Connecticut in the 21st century, I think it feels less like following a well-trodden path and more like blazing a new trail into some uncertain territory. So I think just like the Christians in Colossae back then, we might have many reasons to feel what they did, anxiety, uncertainty, and confusion. And therefore, we need to pay close attention to what the Apostle Paul says here. Now, because the message God gave Paul for the Colossians back then is very much a relevant message to us today. Now, the title I've chosen for this sermon series is Keep Calm and Carry On in Christ. Because I think that summarizes Paul's message to these believers who were just starting out on their journey with Jesus, living in an economically declining city and surrounded by competing spiritual influences. He was encouraging them uh, to remember who they are in Christ and live out of that connection with Jesus above all else. Verse 6 is sort of the key verse the hinge on which the book turns. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So the first part of Colossians, what we looked at the last, over the last four weeks, focuses on how the Colossians had come to faith in Jesus, how they had received Christ Jesus as Lord, how they had come to believe in him. And so we saw Paul gave thanks for that. He prayed for their continued growth. He launched into a hymn of praise about Jesus who holds the universe together and holds their lives together. And then last week we saw how he talked about his own personal concern and care for them. So the first part of the, chapter, the, the letter is about how they've received Jesus as Lord. But then the second part of the letter is about how to walk in him. How to live their daily lives out of their connection with Jesus. And what that looks like practically. Uh, so that's what we'll be seeing over the next few weeks in the rest of the book. It's sort of a picture of the Christian life. Um, and I think this is relevant to you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. If, you're, if you've been uh, walking with Jesus for a long time, this, uh, this book reminds us of the central reality 
of, being, of what it means to be a Christian, to be, as Paul says, in Christ. And if you're considering Christianity, this is a picture of what Christianity means, what it would mean for you to be a Christian, to follow Christ. Um, if you look at the verses that I read, there are eight times that Paul uses the phrase in Christ or with Christ. It appears in nearly every verse of our passage. So this is sort of the key concept that Paul's looking at in this passage. What does it mean to be in him? That means connected with Jesus, united with Jesus, and living out of that connection with Jesus. So I want to look at three themes today uh, that Paul uh, shows us in this passage. Number one, having a foundation, what it means to have a foundation in Christ in verses 6 and 7. Number two, what it means to have fullness in Christ, verses 8 through 12. And number three, what it means to have freedom in Christ. Because these, Paul says these are the three realities of what it means to be in Christ, to have a foundation, to have fullness, and have freedom. So let's jump in and look at what Paul says about these things. First, having a foundation in Christ. In verse 7, uh, Paul gives four images, uh, four verbs, um, or participles technically, uh, four pictures of what it means to build on the foundation of Christ. So first, he says, being in Christ means rooted, being rooted like a tree. Now, if you remember Jesus' words, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So if you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit, right? But the only way a branch bears fruit is by being connected vitally to the vine. So Paul's saying, if you've received Jesus as Lord, you've been planted in God's garden and his life and power is flowing into you. Therefore, let your roots in him grow deep. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. That person is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it doesn't cease to bear fruit. So that's the first picture Paul gives us of a tree firmly rooted and growing deeper. Second picture he gives us is of being in Christ is being built up. So this is a construction metaphor. So he started with an agricultural metaphor, now a construction metaphor, being built up like a house or like a temple. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, uses a similar image. It says, Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this image reminds us that walking with Jesus isn't just something that we do privately, sort of one-to-one -one individually, but it's something that God is building us together as a community. The picture is the church is a house, and God is building it together with each stone, each uh, part of um, the house, and that God dwells among us so we might display his glory to the world. Third, third picture is a legal word, established. Now, that word was often used in legal contracts uh, or judicial verdicts. It's a word that meant settled, verified, uh, confirmed, established. So Paul wants us to know that the content of the Christian faith is true and reliable. Uh, that it's been reliably passed down over the years. So every once in a while, uh, someone asks me, how do we know that the Bible, you know, these, these copies of the Bible that you have in the pews, how do we know that that hasn't been changed over the 2,000 years since it was written? Good question. 
Now, the answer, I, now, I have a good answer for that question. The answer is we have literally thousands of ancient copies of manuscripts of the Bible, of the New Testament. And we can compare them all with each other, and they all tell the same basic story. You know, in fact, we have far more copies of the New Testament from the ancient world than we do of any other document that was written in the ancient world. Uh, and we can be very confident from all these copies that the main message of the Bible, it hasn't been doctored up or changed over time. Uh, Paul wants us to know there's a good reason to believe these things. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was a guy who lived in the 11th century, who, uh, time where most of us don't know much of what was going on back then, but there was a Christian philosopher named Anselm. And Anselm wrote a treatise uh, ex uh, focusing on the concept of what he called faith, seeking understanding and that was sort of his mantra his 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 uh you know his catchphrase uh faith seeking understanding so the first thing he say, said is you, faith is essential to life uh in other words you can't insist on understanding everything before you believe anything because think about how you began your physical life right the every one of us came out of the womb and the only way we survived for more than a day or two was by latching on to some, to the breast or a bottle, right? And trusting that what came out of there would nourish us rather than kill us. Even though we could not put into words what we were doing, we couldn't make a rational argument for why we were trusting what was offered to us, right? But the only way that we physically survived and grew was it began with trust. Trust in something that we couldn't fully explain or uh, understand. Uh, and that's, 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 an, that's an interesting picture because the Bible also uses that image to describe the beginning of a spiritual life in Christ. It actually uses that analogy to birth. It talks about a spiritual rebirth. Uh, and it talks about drink, it uses the metaphor of drinking in God's word like pure spiritual milk. In other words, trusting that God is there, God is real, he loves us, and he's wiser than us. So Paul's saying, faith, we all have faith in something. Really, the question for every human being is, is not just, do you have any faith, but what do you trust? Um, and, and Paul's saying we need to actually, the only way that we survive physically is by trusting something outside ourselves. Right? No, one, no, no baby survives by trusting only themselves. You have to trust something outside you. But here's the thing that Anselm said. Anselm said we don't stop there. Growing Christians don't just stop with having faith and not trying to understand. No, he says faith seeking understanding. That's what growing in Christ looks like. So he went on to say, I do not endeavor, O Lord, to penetrate your transcendence, but I long to understand in some degree your truth, which my heart believes and loves. So let me challenge you. Are you on that journey of faith-seeking understanding? Right? Maybe it starts by examining, what do I believe? I mean, we all believe in something. You believe other people exist. You believe the physical world exists, probably. Some philosophers question those things, but most of us assume those things, right? What do we believe? And are, if, if you come to faith in Jesus, are you seeking to grow in understanding? Um, so let me yeah, challenge you. Are you dealing with the hard questions 
that maybe other people ask you, or maybe you ask yourself, rather than just avoiding them. Right? That's part of what Paul's encouraging us to do here, is grow so that we can be established, settled, confirmed, confident in the faith. And uh, let me just say, I think that this church can be a good place to start working through some of those questions that you might have in your mind that are still unaddressed or unresolved. I think we all have some of those. And part of why we come together is to look at the Bible together and discuss those questions together and hopefully grow an understanding together over time. So that's the third image. There's an agriculture image, a construction image, a legal image, and finally, abounding in thanksgiving. Uh, that word could refer to an unexpectedly large profit from a business or an overflowing fountain or jug. So Paul says we should be abounding and overflowing in thanksgiving. Uh, abounding in gratitude protects us against negative patterns of thought that can develop within us. Right? So gratitude protects us against all kinds of things. Envy, jealousy, self-pity, entitlement, arrogance, discontentment. Right? All those sort of ugly things, gratitude drives them all away. So Paul says we should be abounding in gratitude like a fountain. Uh, gratitude doesn't let those things gain a destructive foothold in our soul. So that's the foundation that we have in Christ. Paul begins with uh, that in Christ uh, we have a foundation. Second theme Paul wants us to see in verses 8 through 12 is that in Christ we have fullness. Verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement that Paul is making. Uh, Christians believe that Jesus is fully God. That's what Paul's saying here. In Jesus Christ, a, the, the, human, the human being who walked around on earth 2,000 years ago, in him, the whole fullness of God dwells in him. Jesus is fully human and fully God. And so if you want to know God, look at the face of Jesus Christ. Look at the person of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go any further than that. That's how you can know God most deeply, by looking at Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the main differences between Christianity and almost every other religion. Now, some religions would, would completely disagree with verse 9. They would say that the fullness of deity does not dwell in any person. They would say the fullness of deity is inherently unapproachable. God is transcendent. God is far away. God is big. God is great. And don't you dare say that you are God. But here's a question. If God is truly all-powerful and greater than we can understand, wouldn't it be limiting his power to say that he couldn't choose to enter into his creation to reveal himself to his creatures? If God is that's what Paul believes. Paul says God is that almighty and that wise and that powerful that he, and he chose to reveal himself to us by becoming one of us in Jesus Christ. He says it doesn't take away from God's greatness. In fact, it's a manifestation of God's greatness. It shows that God is even greater, that he's not only far away, but he's also close to us. 
Now, other religions would have no problem with verse 9. But they would say it applies to everyone. Okay, other, other religions would say God is in everything, everything is in God. We're all like drops in the ocean. In him all the fullness of deity dwells, and in you all the fullness of deity dwells too. We're all parts of God. Right? So there's some religions that say something like that. But here's the problem with that view. If God is in everything, and everything is in God, and everything is part of God, it becomes very hard to make any ultimate distinctions between good and evil, or between a human being and a piece of dirt. How is one really any different than another if we're all just drops in the ocean? So Christianity has a distinct view of God. Christianity says God is fundamentally different than us. So the religions that say God is transcendent are right about that. We can't approach God on our own. But Christianity also says that in his mercy, God has chosen to come close to us and to invite us to dwell with him through Jesus Christ. So verse 10, Paul goes on, you have been filled in him. That in Jesus, you have the fullness of God living in you through Jesus. That, okay, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean we are the fullness of God, that's not true, but it means that if Jesus Christ is living in us, that we have been filled in him. You see, here's the thing. Some people were coming to the Colossian Christians, and they were basically saying, you believe in Christ, that's fine. We're not trying to take that away from you. But in order to really thrive and flourish spiritually, you need something else. You need something more. You need something in addition to Christ. And Paul was saying, no. All that you really need is found in Christ. He's the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's ultimately fulfilling. You can't improve upon him by adding something else into the mix. It's like a perfect recipe. Right? How many of you think you've found a perfect recipe for something or other? And if you add something or if you take away something, you will just mess it up. Right? Now we can only approach a perfect recipe. We might disagree about what that is. But the point is Jesus is like the perfect recipe. Fully God and fully human. He reconciles us to God. There's nothing more that you can add to him to make him any better. And that's what Paul's saying to the Colossians. You don't need to be anxious and have this fear of missing out. Right? We think fear of missing out is a very new concept. But there's not much new under the sun, right? Probably, right? Paul's saying you don't need to fear that you're missing out on something if you have Jesus. Uh, so that's why Paul warned, him, warned them in verse 8 against philosophy and empty deceit. Now, Paul wasn't uh, disparaging the discipline of philosophy in general. He wasn't rejecting logical thinking. Paul was saying that all the fullness of God is found in Jesus, so don't uh, latch on to something else that, is, that, that will make you empty in the end. There's nothing more fulfilling than him. Now, Paul goes on in verses 11 and 12 to unpack some of this fullness that we have in Christ. And these verses get very dense. Somebody's nodding. <laughs> right? When I was reading these verses, some of you might have been like, whoa, that was a mouthful. 
Uh, it's, that's, that, that feels like eating five steaks piled on top of each other, right? This is dense. Okay, so let me slow down a little bit, try to help us get through this and see what, see what the, get, get to the heart of this. So, uh, verse 11, in him also you were circumcised. Now, in the Old Testament, God required all the Israelite males to be circumcised as and uh, physically, and it represented putting away everything that displeases God and dedicating oneself fully to God for the task ahead. So it was a, an outward sign of devotion to God. That was what it represented. Uh, but verse 11 isn't talking about physically, physically being circumcised. It says a circumcision made without hands. That means not physical or human, but you are circumcised by God. That is, you are spiritually cleansed and set apart. Uh, then, next phrase, by putting off the body of the flesh. You might think, what does that mean? Well, if you go a little further uh, in Colossians, look at chapter 3, verse 9. Paul uses the same word. He says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Uh, so the, the image there is it's sort of like, imagine that you are wearing a full body suit that is dirty and stinky, and that you have worn ever since you were born, and it has never been washed. Right? Imagine that. It's the worst piece of laundry you can imagine. And Paul says that Jesus Christ takes that off of us and clothes us, gives us a new set of clothes. That's the image. By putting off the body of the flesh, that is our, our sinful nature, He's not saying something negative about our physical bodies, but he's talking about our sort of our sinful inclinations. God has removed those. And now we have a new identity in Jesus, sort of like a set of new clothes. And he does it, next phrase, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is, in him you were spiritually cleansed by removing your corruption by the circumcision of Christ. Now that could mean that Christ is the one who does this, but I think it actually refers to the crucifixion of Christ. So circumcision was a bloody and painful expression of devotion to God. And the greatest act of devotion to God that was also very bloody and painful was Jesus Christ's death on the cross. So I think Paul's using this image of circumcision to point to a greater reality of what Jesus did. So what Paul is saying here is that the crucifixion, what Jesus did on the cross, accomplished what physical circumcision couldn't. Physical circumcision was sort of a symbolic gesture, but it couldn't in itself cleanse our hearts. So what Paul's saying here in verse 11 is basically that in Jesus, we've been spiritually cleansed and our corruption has been removed. And verse 12 gives us sort of the other side of it. Not only has the corruption been removed, we've also been raised to new life with him buried with him in baptism, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Right? When Jesus died on the cross, he was then buried and raised. And Paul is saying that in him, we've died to our old self. It's been buried with Jesus. and We've been raised again to new life. That's what baptism is a picture of. That transition from the old life to the new life in Christ. So that's the big picture of what verses 11 and 12 are saying. God has washed us clean, 
and he's given us a new identity in him, a whole new wardrobe, and he's raised us up to new life. So that's the fullness that we have in Christ. Now, third and final point, Paul's talking about the foundation we can build on in Christ, the fullness we have in Christ, and third, the freedom we have in Christ, verses 13 to 15, emphasize this theme of freedom. Uh, and Paul talks about freedom from the guilt and shame of sin in verses 13 and 14, and then freedom uh, from the powers of darkness in verse 15. You know, one of the things I think we all can recognize is that guilt and shame can enslave us. Uh, verse 14 talks about the record of debt that stood against us. That word meant an IOU or a legal bond. So, you know, think about if someone's in debt, right? If you're in debt and you conveniently forget that fact or try to ignore or overlook that fact, guess what? The debt's not going to go away. It's just going to pile up. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Sometimes that's one of the terrible aspects of being in overwhelming debt is that feeling of anxiety and knowing that you can't shake it, but you don't want to deal with it because you can't pay it all off, right? And Paul is using that metaphor to describe our relationship to God. Paul says we all owe God our full obedience. I mean, he made us after all. And none of us have come anywhere near living up to that. We all owe God a debt that we can't pay by ourselves. If we measure ourselves against the standard of God's perfection, we've all transgressed, Paul says. Every single one of us. No exceptions. But then, verse 14 is wonderful news because it says he forgave us all our trespasses and he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Now that's an amazing statement. That Jesus paid the debt that we couldn't pay. I mean, imagine if you were in debt and one day somebody else came along and paid it all off. I mean, what a relief that would be. And Paul's saying, that's what Jesus did. He paid the price to set us free from the guilt and shame of our sin and the debt that we owed God. It says this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's freedom from the guilt and shame of sin in Jesus Christ, and that's a reason to rejoice. And verse 15 tells us there's also freedom from the powers of darkness. He, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, you might sort of think, well, what is, what, is that? what is Paul even saying in this verse? Well, these rulers and authorities could be evil spiritual powers, as, in, as are mentioned in Ephesians 6, or they could be evil power structures in this world. But either way, what verse 15 is saying is that on the cross, by his death, Jesus triumphed over every evil power. So think about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He was literally condemned to death by the powers of this world, by the Jewish and Roman authorities, by Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin. He was literally condemned to death by the rulers and authorities of this world. 
And behind them and behind Judas, who betrayed him, the Bible gives hints that Satan, Satan entered into Judas to betray him. Satan was trying to get rid of Jesus forever. Right? So it seemed like Jesus was defeated by the powers and authorities when he died on the cross. But guess what? When it seemed like they had triumphed over Jesus, Jesus had actually triumphed over them. And he would prove that by his resurrection on three days later. So N.T. Wright put it this way, These powers stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. But in verse 15, Paul declares that on the cross, God was stripping them naked, that is, disarming them. That word actually means to be sort of stripped. Um, disarmed, rendered powerless, was holding them up to public contempt and leading them in his own triumphal procession. The cross, therefore, becomes the source of hope for all who are held captive. Christ breaks the last hold that the powers had over his people by dying on their behalf. So here's the point. Jesus has triumphed over every evil power and authority, and he will have the last word. So if there are demons that are afflicting you, or addictions that threaten to overcome you, or despair that you feel like you can't shake off, Jesus has triumphed. He is stronger than all of those things. Perhaps you worry that your future will be determined by curses or spells or traumatic experiences or lies that people have spoken over your life. And verse 15 says, none of those things can stand before the triumphant power of Jesus. He triumphed, he disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them through the cross. They do not have the last word, and they don't have to have the last word in your life if you're in Jesus, because he is stronger than all those things. And he can lift you and carry you through whatever, any of those things that might be against you. Because all of those things were against him, and he triumphed. And, and if we're in him, if we're connected to him, we can triumph over them in him. Jesus triumphed through the cross. And in one of other, Paul's other letters, 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, Jesus leads us in triumphal procession, even when we are suffering for his sake. But Jesus won a triumph. And we, too, can live in that freedom and grab hold of that freedom that we have in him. So in Jesus, there's a firm foundation, there's fullness of life, and there's freedom from guilt and shame and bondage. That's what Jesus offers. It's pretty amazing. You feel anxiety, confusion, uncertainty? Look at what we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a, an astounding passage, what it says about what you have achieved for us. I pray that we would experience this in our own lives at a deeper level. The foundation that we have in you, the fullness that we have in you, the freedom that we have in you, give us, Lord, for those who may 
wonder whether these things are real and true. Help us to seek that truth. Lord, for those of us who have tasted these things, help us to appreciate them and, and take them into ourselves in a new way. Jesus, we praise you for how amazing you are. In your name we pray, amen. Well, our last hymn uh, talks about what it means to be in Christ, in Christ alone. So it's hymn number 177. Uh, so we're going to close by singing this hymn and hope that as we sing it, as you listen to it, that these truths from this passage would resonate in our hearts. <laughs>